Something extraordinary has happened to Judy Sizemore's closet, making it feel more like a closet. 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 An area that once caused claustrophobia now has enough space, space. space to hold all of Judy's striped boat neck sweaters. And Judy Sizemore has a lot of striped stripe, stripe. boat neck sweaters. sweaters. The Container Store Alpha Sale is here with 30% off Alpha and installation. The Container Store, where space comes from. It's time once again for another episode of Planning Successfully. Brought to you by the law firm of Davis, Matthews, and Quigley. Planning Successfully is for general information purposes only. And no information discussed during this show is to be considered either legal advice or legal opinion. Broadcasting live from the Pro Business Channel studios in Atlanta. And now here's your host for today's episode, Matthew Theory. Welcome and thank you for joining us again for an episode of Planning Successfully. My name is Matt Theory and I'm your host. I'm joined in studio today again by my colleague John Sugg. Uh, welcome back, John. As those uh, that have listened to our most recent show know, uh, John is a fellow shareholder at the law firm of Davis Matthews and Quigley. And in case you're listening for the first time, my practice focuses on business law, business litigation, and fiduciary litigation, as well as providing mediator and arbitrator services. And I'd like to take a moment to allow John to reintroduce himself to our audience and give a brief overview of his practice as well. Thanks, Matt. So as I mentioned last time, my practice primarily involves business litigation, so representing clients and their disputes and, and resolving those matters, and then also in just general business law, so helping clients avoid those disputes um, proactively in that respect. Uh, thanks, John. You can learn more about me, about John, and about the other attorneys at Davis Matthews and Quigley by visiting our website, which is www.dmqlaw.com. Today's show is essentially a continuation of our previous show. Uh, last time we spoke about contract disputes, and we had hoped to reach the subject of disputes between co-owners of companies as well. Uh, before reaching that issue, we ran out of time, and as such, today we're going to try to pick up where we left off and discuss the common and very difficult uh, disputes that sometimes business owners face, disputes between the, their co-owners. A lot of the material we're going to cover today relates to material that's been discussed in previous episodes. Uh, in fact, each of the previous episodes has some connection to the, today's discussion. We're going to talk about co-owners. Uh, what type of co-owners you are will be based in part on the type of entity uh, your business is. Uh, we discussed a lot of uh, the distinctions between the types of entities during our uh, inaugural show. Um, as you will hear, a lot of the issues we're going to discuss today can be proactively addressed in certain contracts like a shareholders agreement or an operating agreement. Uh, one of my other colleagues, Rhett Peden, and I uh, did a previous show regarding business contracts, and uh, a lot of the discussion in that show is relevant as well as to, to today's conversation. And divorce, death, and disability often create co-owner uh, disputes and conflicts. These were addressed in a previous show where I was joined by two of my other shareholder colleagues, uh, Elizabeth Lindsay and Lee Drake. And finally, of course, our most recent show, uh, as I mentioned earlier, where John and I were on the air and we were discussing contract disputes, uh, which is obviously uh, in times related to co-owner disputes as well. So if you haven't already done so, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the previous episodes of the show on these topics uh, to get some further information. You can listen to these previous episodes by visiting planningsuccessfully.com or by visiting dmqlaw.com. Today, as I mentioned, we're going to discuss disputes between co-owners. Uh, the rights and obligations 
that flow between co-owners are often set forth in the governing documents for that organization, whether it be a shareholders agreement or an operating agreement or a partnership agreement. Uh, sometimes co-owners don't go as far as to create such agreements and they're left with a uh, a lot of gaps and a lot of ambiguities, and then a lot of problems later on when the dispute would arise. Uh, some of the duties are created by law. For example, there are statutes that can fill the gaps on these issues that aren't addressed in the governing documents. Setting forth the rights is important. It allows the owners to tailor their rights to their desires and their business as opposed to being stuck with what would be defaults or um, ambiguity fights later on. When figuring out the rights and duties in these documents, it's important to clarify whom the lawyer is working for. Uh, I think this is a kind of a, a basic point that needs to be addressed. The, the lawyer can be working for one of several, several different folks or entities. Uh, for example, one of the co-owners that's coming to form the business may hire the lawyer to represent his or her interest and in drafting that agreement or drafting documents or negotiating with the other co-owners on the, on the formation issues. Uh, typically the lawyer drafting the documents is engaged to represent the company as opposed to one of the co-owners. So you wouldn't, as a lawyer, be representing the owners. You would be representing the entity they're forming. Um, they're, they're, therefore, owners will often want their own attorneys to review and comment on the drafts and make sure that the owner's interests are represented as, as opposed to just the interest of the entity. Um, as as the disputes may arise down the road, uh, you know it's also important to note that company lawyer is typically not going to be able to represent one of the co-owners against the other co-owner. Uh, there also are fiduciary duties in, in certain cir- circumstances, which we'll get into a little bit later on. Um, but these cases are really not limited to one type of case. Uh, you know, a few examples that we may get into: uh, one owner may assert that the business has done something wrong to him or her. Another case could be that a business has been harmed by one of its co-owners. Uh, for example, if one of the co-owners has stolen a corporate opportunity and made it a uh, personal opportunity. Another is where a business owner directly harms another business owner. And then I think one of the largest uh, areas that these disputes come up with is the area of deadlock. What happens when one, more than one person has the authority to act and the people with authority can't agree to how to proceed on that situation? Right, Matt. And, you know, as you were mentioning earlier, oftentimes these issues are going to be governed by the company's agreement and controlling documents, and they're going to dictate the results of a lot of these disputes. Um, For instance, what happens in a deadlock? How do you settle uh, how the decision is going to be made when two people or four people or six people? Oftentimes it's when disputes involving an even amount of people. How do you resolve what's going to be done or what's not going to be done? also, how are an ownership interest, how are those interests going to be purchased? Uh, at some point, an owner will likely want to leave that company. Obviously, we all die. So even if the owner doesn't, um, what happens when the owner passes away? And, and how is that interest? Is it going to be transferred um, to back to the company? Is it going to be transferred to his heirs? All of these are important considerations that you want to consider um, when you're sitting down and forming a company or, or figuring out how to modify uh, how the company will work um, whenever it's appropriate to do so. So let's talk about, for instance, in going back to what I was just talking about, when someone wants to leave, you're, you're going to need to basically develop a purchase price for how that person's interests are going to be um, valued and, and all that kind of thing. And, and it's a lot 
easier at, in, at first sense than, than it actually becomes. When you start thinking these things out, um, it becomes more complex and more difficult. And these are all important discussions to have on the front end so that you're not dealing with them at the tail end when the situation actually arises. So, for instance, how are you going to value what this person's interest is? Um, most, oh, not most, all privately held companies, you can't pick up the Wall Street Journal or go to a website and, and plug in the stock ticker and figure out what the value is on a given date. You have to figure that out on your own or you have to hire someone to figure it out on your own. And that's just the first step. Then you have to figure out, well, what kind of value are you looking at? So a lot of times it's going to be fair market value. And the, the simple definition of fair market value is the purchase price that a willing buyer and a willing seller under no compulsion and with reasonable knowledge of the relevant facts would agree upon. And so that is typically an objective standard. It's basically a hypothetical kind of what would someone out there who was under no compulsion and willing and wanting to buy or sell this particular interest, how would they value it? Then you also have another form of value called investment value. And so this is more subjective. It's looking to this particular owner or class of owners. Is this particular business interest so important to this person, the person holding that interest, that that person values it at a higher value than what someone outside of the organization or maybe even one of his partners or her partners would value it at? So is that an appropriate way to value the share? Do you want to look at it what an objective person would, or do you want to look at it what the person who actually is holding the interest would value it at? And then there's also something called intrinsic value, which is basically what an analyst believes the real value is. He could say, here's what I think the fair market value, here's what I think the investment value, but here's what I really think the value is, and that's just going to be more of a personal opinion. And most of the time, all the value is going to be an opinion um, and and certainly people have different opinions even when they're using the same standard of value. One person might think the fair market value of a membership interest is, is much higher or much lower than the other based on a lot of circumstances. Um, and a lot of times where you see the differing opinions per, is um, for discounts. So two really common discounts that you, that you see in the fair market value um, analysis is a lack of control. And so if you own 50% or less of a membership interest um, or the stock in a company, and again, there are other ways of deciding how things will be decided in an organization rather than just how much of it you own, but I'm just kind of going to the default provision that normally decisions are made based on or tied to the ownership interest. So if you own less than 50%, you can't really control what that company will do or what it won't do unless you have someone else, your, your partner or your co-owner agree, or at least you have someone else to reach your, your kind of threshold of, of a majority to do so. So in considering that, when people are considering value, a lot of times if you don't have a 51% interest, people will discount that because especially if you're thinking about an objective buyer out there in the market, they want control. They don't want to buy a membership interest or control uh, or a um, uh, share and, and not be able to control what happens um, within the organization. In addition to that, a lot of times you'll see um, lack of marketability discounts. Uh, it's very, very common for organizations to have restrictions on the transferability of a stock or a membership interest. 
Um, and so, again, if there are inhibitions on one's ability to actually dispose of a membership interest or stock in a way that he or she wants to, then um, that's something that needs to be accounted for in considering what someone out there, an objective person, uh, would consider as, a, as the fair market value of this interest. And, and John, you're talking about uh, discounts that are applied to the value of businesses. And I want to, just for a second, kind of step aside from two types of different businesses here. We have you know, your, your businesses that are owned within families, and then you have these close corporations that are owned by several unrelated shareholders, uh, much like you and I. And in the context of family-owned businesses, there's a, there's a change that's, that's uh, proposed and likely to occur in, in the valuation of family businesses for tax purposes. Now, I, I recognize that you and I are not discussing necessarily tax purposes for the moment, but I want to draw that issue out just for a second to say that, you know, as, as it's valued for taxes may later or sooner than later start to flow into how it's vis- uh, valued for other purposes as well. And in that context, uh, there are some proposed legislation that will change the way family-owned businesses are able to take discounts for tax purposes. Uh, if, if it, if it uh, in other words, lack of control and lack of marketability, the discounts that you're talking about, there, there's going to be some significant limitations if this legislation goes through as to the applicability of those for tax purposes in family-owned businesses. So I just want to draw that out. I think it's an interesting thing that's it's kind of one of those uh, – legal topics that's of uh, a lot of discussion as of late and uh, while it may not necessarily immediately impact valuation for dispute purposes or shareholder redemption purposes or you know selling of an interest of, a, of the company itself uh, it likely will at some point in time trickle down into valuation of these family-owned businesses you know these disputes have a have a propensity to become very complicated uh, and uh somewhat emotionally charged uh, between the owners of businesses. Obviously, a lot of folks put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into their companies and have very strong opinions as to how things should go. And uh, these disputes, because of that, can have a devastating impact on a closely held business. Um, You know, all of a sudden, one of the co-owners or maybe all of the co-owners are focused on fighting with one another as opposed to making money doing what they do best operating their business so that's one way that it has a devastating impact on it another way as we'll discuss a little bit more later on is uh you know under certain circumstances a dispute could be catastrophic Uh, um, it could force the dissolution of the company itself Um, these cases often have contractual disputes we discussed those disputes earlier in in the previous show as i mentioned however these disputes all often also include what's known as a business tort claim a tort's essentially a wrongful act or other than a simple breach of contract, which is going to cause harm to someone. These claims provide for damages beyond what you could ordinarily obtain in, in a contract damages case. And, John, uh, you went through a pretty detailed conversation in the previous show about what the contract damages uh, and how they're typically set forth. Uh, in tort claims, you have some additional damage remedies that are typically available to you. Um, intentional tort claims, that's when a party intentionally did an act to harm someone that ends up harming someone. Um, they provide the ability to make a claim for attorney's fees. Uh, in, in, in the, there's a statute in Georgia that provides that if someone acts in bad faith, is stubbornly litigious, or causes unnecessary trouble and expense prior to the litigation, that 
they have an ability to make a claim for attorney's fees. And we've discussed attorney's fees previously also. They're not guaranteed, uh, and it's not guaranteed that even if they're awarded that you'll get the amount that you ask for. But in an intentional tort situation, you're typically looking at a bad faith argument for attorney's fees, and uh, you'd want to be able to present to the jury your attorney's fees claim to seek an award. So, you know, I think maybe one thing, Matt, you were talking about was business tort claims. So maybe we should take a second just to kind of go over those and and just briefly explain those. So, you know, one that you often see is called the breach of fiduciary duty. And what a fiduciary duty is, is it's basically the utmost good faith that someone owes to an organization and or to its fellow members and other interested parties. Um, So typically directors, officers, and partners um, have to have this fiduciary duty, which requires them to discharge their duties in good faith and to in the best interest of the company and with the care that an ordinarily prudent person in a like position would ex- exercise under similar circumstances. So that's what you're looking for with directors, officers, and partners. Um, these duties can be modified, again, going back to our discussion regarding the governing uh documents that are either the corporation or whatever other entity it may have um, in place, these documents can be modified to a certain extent in those in those agreements. Um, with limited liability companies, it depends on whether that LLC is managed by its members or if there is a manager or managers who can also be members who is charged with the responsibility of management of the limited liability company. And if it is member managed, then the members um, uh, do not really owe any fiduciary duty to the entity or to each other, unless there's an agreement to the contrary. If the manager or if the members, however, are charged with the responsibility of managing the LLC, then they do owe the, these fiduciary duties that we've talked about to each other and also to the entity itself. So really, a lot of times what you're looking at with breach of fiduciary duty claims is self-dealing to the detriment of a partnership or, or a corporation or whatever entity it may be. Someone involved in the organization is engaging in, in a way to benefit his or herself personally and to the harm and to the detriment of the organization. Um, in addition to that direct act that we're talking about, if you aid and abet in someone breaching their fiduciary duty, then you can also be held liable for that person's conduct. Um, there's also a variety of other claims, tortious interference with a contract or a business relationship. Um, and that's the, the elements of that claim are when someone acted improperly and without privilege and they purposely and maliciously had the intent to injure and they induced a third party not to enter or continue a business relationship with the plaintiff and, and cause some financial injury. So those are the elements of that. Um, a lot of times with a tortious interference claim, you, with, when we're talking about acting improperly, um, you'll see claims of defamation um, and that kind of thing. And defamation is also its own tort. So well, sometimes the same conduct giving rise to defamation can also give rise to a tortious interference claim if, if all those other elements are met. Um, there's conversion. Obviously, if a partner is stealing funds out of the entity, then that is going to be a breach of fiduciary duty, what we just talked about. But it's also going to be a simple conversion, which is basically asserting any dominion or control wrongfully over another's personal property. Um, 
And so that is, again, same conduct, but you're, uh, you're charged with liability on the fiduciary duty front and also on the conversion claim. And with conversion, I think another way to look at conversion is it's, it's really a civil claim for theft. Right. I mean, uh, you know, people hear conversion and they, what are you talking about? That's good legalese, but that doesn't apply to me. Uh, what it really means is, did you steal something? Uh, did you take control of something that wasn't yours and say, I'm not giving it back? Um, these cases generally arise because of duties owed to co-owners that extend beyond the terms of their contract. The law implies certain duties. Some of these claims also provide the ability to seek uh, injunctive relief. And injunctive relief is really when you go to a court and you say there's an emergency need to stop someone from doing what they're currently doing because their actions are causing irreparable harm to the company. And that if if they don't stop that action right now and hold it sort of in a status quo arrangement pending the litigation, that the person being harmed is not going to be able to be made whole through the recovery of money damages. And where you see that a lot, um, you see that a lot in the context of restrictive covenants. Um, if someone has signed a non-compete or a non-solicitation agreement and they leave their employment and immediately go out start up a competing business and start soliciting customers in violation of the agreements that they've made. Well, obviously, if, if I'm going after the clientele that was providing the ability for the business to contain and sustain itself, then I'm, I'm have the, I have the ability to then go out and harm the business in a way that you just can't pay me once and fix it. It's going to kill the business forever. And so in those types of situations, you will frequently see someone seek injunctive relief, asking the court to intervene to stop the person violating those restrictive covenants, to force them to sit at a status quo arrangement until the court has an opportunity to, to better assess the situation as a whole without having the opportunity for the irreparable harm to continue. So that's, that's injunctive relief. Uh, some of these claims also provide uh, a basis to seek punitive damages, and punitive damages, I think most people are generally aware of what that means, but punitive damages are designed to punish someone. And it's not necessarily based on the amount of award or other damages that exist, but it's basically what is necessary to deter this person from acting in a similar manner in the future. And the, the, in order to obtain punitive damages, uh, you have to show that by clear and convincing evidence. So you have you have the general civil standard of preponderance of evidence, which is, is sort of if you can envision your scales of justice on equal level. If the For preponderance, you're basically taking that scale and just adjusting it slightly to one side versus the other, um, which is a significantly less standard than beyond a reasonable doubt that you normally hear of in the criminal context. Well, clear and convincing evidence is somewhere in between. Uh, it's not quite beyond reasonable doubt, but it's more than a preponderance. And so if, if, if it's proven with clear and convincing evidence that the defendant's actions were willful misconduct, malice, fraud, oppressive, wanton, um, just complete absence of uh, entire want of care, then you, you could seek uh, punitive damages to punish them for those activities. Uh, and in civil actions with punitive damages, there is a what's called a non-product liability cap, or there's a it's of two hundred fifty thousand dollars is the general cap that's placed on punitive damages that the jury can award to someone. There is there is a exception to the cap, and that's really in a situation where you have someone that is actually uh, created an intentional 
harm, where they 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 intended to cause the harm that ex- that actually resulted from their actions. Um, you know, oftentimes these disputes result in a battle that's essentially a business divorce. And when I say that, uh, you know, I think it's a really interesting analogy because when you have co-owners, in, in a lot of ways, it's like a marriage. And when co-owners fight, it's also oftentimes like a marriage. And the emotional side of things and the, and the justice equities that they perceive are not necessarily the same as a business-to-business dispute. There's a, there's a lot more involvement. There's a lot more... You know, you're you're much more intimately involved with your partners than you are typically with your business uh, businesses that you deal with on an ordinary contract basis. So they they have an op, they have an opportunity to get heated very quickly. Um, how the owners elect to to proceed with these disputes oftentimes determines whether the business survives the dispute. Um, you know, some folks can go out and just and and lay it all out on the line they want to litigate and they want to fight and the other person has done them wrong and so help me that's what we're going to do and oftentimes those those types of battles end up killing the company uh so they they for lack of a better word kill the golden goose that they were working to build and um they can also harm the position in the market of the business uh you know if you're doing business with a company and you you know that the, the owners of the company are at each other's throat and they're in a dispute, you know that that harms the reputation of the company and also makes it less likely that people in the market will want to do business with that company. Um, moreover, they can harm the ability of the company to be sold uh, because it's going to affect the value of the business and partly because of what I just mentioned as far as the market uh, perception. But you know, if things aren't moving slowly, it's hard to make it an attractive sale. Uh, so that's that's a difficult thing to uh, to work with, and it definitely would impact the value of the business. So there are some things that can be done in the governing documents, uh, as we've mentioned several times, to help limit the scope of the disputes, providing what happens in the event of a dispute. Uh, these these disputes can happen with any split of ownership interest in a company. It doesn't have to necessarily be two owners split fifty fifty or uh, or some sort of even split between multiple numbers of folks. Uh, However, I think these cases typically are escalated or more often seen in situations where you have two owners at 50-50 ownership and the parties can't agree on how to take care of things. So it, it really comes down to can the parties agree in the governing documents who will have final say on certain things. You can, you can take steps to avoid these problems um, by being proactive. Uh, for example, if, if John and I were 50-50 owners in a company, we could agree that I would have final say on all operational issues and John might have final say on all financial issues. So if we get into a dispute one day about something that would be considered operational, you know, he, he has his say, I have my say. If we get into a deadlock situation, I get to break the deadlock. Um, likewise, if, if we get into a dispute about money and the finances and we, we can't, we can't get past it, the operational documents may provide that John then would have the ability to move us past that impasse. Um, that's that's that example is really an oversimplification, but it does illustrate the point. Right, and and you could always have a provision in the document stating that if you and I can't agree um, on a particular issue, that someone else will have the final say, and and will be will will submit our opinions to that person, and that person can then tell us how to move forward. So that's that's another example, other than um, leaving one person with the absolute tiebreaker control and and sometimes is a a little bit easier for people to agree on a couple of other examples about 
disputes or you know disagreements regarding the direction of the company does does one owner view the company as something that is being built to sell in the near future for a profit while the own other owner views it as a lifelong career business um disagreements regarding salary and distributions how, how are those going to be made how are the distributions going to be made is it going to be based on simply the percentage ownership interest that someone has or is it going to be based on some sort of formula for revenue that is generated or, or tied to other benchmarks these are all things again that you want in your agreement so that you your company can do what it's supposed to do rather than deal with figuring out these issues and, and, and addressing them when they actually surface and when you're confronted with them. Um, there's also going to be, obviously, disagreements about personnel, uh, hiring and firing employees, and who has the authority to do that. Um, what happens when you disagree about a certain employee's performance, and, and how do you go about terminating that uh, employee's performance? Um, then there's going to be, obviously, disagreements about um, how to preserve the corporate veil, which Matt, I think you talked about last year. Yeah, we talked about that quite a bit in the past, and I think for the sake of time, we're going to have to to just cover a few of these issues quickly. We're running we're running a little short. Um, so those again, you want to make sure that you have a shared vision, or at least a way of settling how a disputed vision of how a company is going to operate within your uh, governing documents, so that you can avoid having to, to face these issues when the actual dispute has arisen rather than preventing it from ever occurring in the first place. Um, you, you know, I think, John, we're, we're pretty much out of time, but I did want to say, you know, we have, you know, just in, in touching, we have, co- uh, you know, reinvestment of profits as far as, as opposed to paying them out or do you grow the company, uh, disagreement regarding funding, or are you taking on capital, how are you doing financing? What are you doing about getting out of the business? Uh, what happens if somebody decides that um, they, they're they're going to uh, go and start a competing business? I think we started a little bit about that with fiduciary duties, but I think uh, you know being proactive when discord becomes evident may help with all, most of these issues. Uh, you know, uh, success, successful companies are destroyed all the time by these types of co-owner disputes. And recognizing when an owner is becoming unhappy with the circumstances can help get ahead of the problem. Um, hopefully the issue can be resolved amicably. Sometimes it has to be resolved through lit- litigation. Um, you know, you can also decide to pursue this uh, off the records through arbitration. But uh, as we are just about out of time, I uh, want to just say, as you can surmise, uh, most co-owner disputes, like most overall disputes, come down to two central issues, money and control. So being proactive uh, to deal with these issues, uh, while they're still merely potential issues as opposed to actual issues, uh, can help avoid some of the emotionally, emotionally charged problems that come later on. I wanted to thank everyone again for joining us for this episode of Planning Successfully. You can learn more about DMQ and its attorneys at www.dmqlaw.com. You can follow DMQ on Twitter at DMQLaw. You can follow me on Twitter at Matthew Theory. You can reach us by telephone at 404-261-3900. Thanks again for joining us, and please join us next time for another episode of Planning Successfully. Thank you again for joining us and our guests on Planning Successfully. Use the social media links here to share today's show and stay tuned for the next episode of Planning Successfully. Brought to you by the law firm of Davis, Matthews, and Quigley. Planning Successfully is for general informational purposes only and no information discussed during the show 
is to be considered either legal advice or legal opinion. To connect with the show sponsor, visit dmqlaw.com. And to listen to previous broadcasts, visit planningsuccessfully.com. Hey, I'm Maurice. As a barber, you might think my scissors are my main tool, but really, it's Metro. That's where I got my iPhone 7. Its camera makes sharing my cuts as simple as snip, snap, share. Right now, get an iPhone 7 with a camera that shoots 4K for just $49.99 when you switch to the number one brand in prepaid. Metro by T-Mobile. Rule your day. Requires port in a eligible number not currently active on T-Mobile Network or active on Metro in past 90 days and verification of ID and independent database. Limit four per account slash household. 32 gigabyte iPhone 7 model only. No tethering. See store for details and terms and conditions.